Blog Talk Radio. Welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon, the podcast that loves you. I'm your host and your groove mistress and your cruise director, Madam Perry, but you can call me Jen, Jennifer, J.P. Perry. I'm just happy that you're here. And um, if you were listening last night, you know that it wasn't a regular show. I'm not sure what a regular show is for me, but um, I had mentioned some people that I had uh, started a little project recently, and of doing radio plays. I listen to a lot of old radio plays on the uh, Radio Classics uh, station on Sirius XM, and uh, some of them are they, anything from Dragnet to The Whistler to uh, uh, X-1, uh, Jack Benny Show, just all kind of stuff, and I just love them so much. So I wanted to write one for a while, uh, put together one, and then because my husband and I both worked a lot last year on uh, court TV shows. And so we just thought, well, let's just let's just try one of those. And we wrote it together. Uh, and so we're starting a series called Judge Madam Perry. And the first one I aired on the show last night. It's only about seven, seven and a half minutes long. But uh, some people said they laughed and they liked the jokes and it was funny and that was good. And I was very lucky to have a good crew uh, to work on, not only my husband, Denton, but uh, Peter Cheese is an animator and cartoonist, did my voiceover intro and credit, uh, two people who actually are professional clowns, uh, Joshua Millwood and Callie Morrow were the clown couple. Uh, my best friend, Kenya Colbert, was the bailiff, and then my husband also played uh, Dr. Squiggy, uh, who was a scientist that did the P- uh, DNA test from the Institute of Testing for Show Business. And so if you get a chance, listen to last night's show, and please tell me how you like it. We're going to have some more coming up. And they won't be on the show necessarily, but it's just, that was just my world premiere, my big seven-minute court show. But anyway, uh, we've had such a good time. And by the way, if you're listening live tonight, and this is the 16th of June, 2020, 8 p.m. Eastern, uh, 8 p.m. Uh, G minus was it G, GMT minus uh, five or minus four during the uh, daylight savings? But anyway, if you're listening um, on Blog Talk Radio, you might see um, a rectangle in fuchsia, with white letters that says follow. And if you would, please click that and follow the show or follow on whatever podcast platform you like to listen to because uh, it's thanks to you following and sharing the show with other people that helps me to get so many great guests like I've had recently, like I've got coming up, and like I've got tonight. By the way, don't forget, Billy Vera was here last Monday. Billy Vera with the song, What Would You Do? Or what Did You Think I Would Do at This Moment? And uh, he's also an actor. He's a blind date with uh, Bruce Willis, uh, Buckaroo Banzai with Peter Weller. Uh, anyway, his new book, Harlem to Hollywood, memoir, great. He's also got another new book, uh, Rip It Up, the story of specialty records, and a new CD. So check him out. And uh, so many more for, so many more fun things coming up. If you follow on Twitter, on Facebook, Madam Perry Salon, you'll know ahead of time who's going to be on the show. So recently, I had an episode put together by uh, an author friend of mine, very interesting fellow named Will Hare. And Will, I said, Will, we'll just come up with something. You know, let's do something different. We haven't done anything in a while. And he said, what about a show on futurists, uh, people who, you know, look toward and, and um, uh, look to what's happening. I was comparing situations now and how things are going to be in the future, especially with all that was going on, well, heck, even a month ago. And so he picked four people. Um, Mary Fawn, who is a, a global expert, uh, financial expert, and a science fiction fantasy author, and an 
she's also an aerialist, like circles. Um, Eric Schumacher, who's an actor, director, filmmaker. Uh, Will, of course, who is a uh, logistics expert and futurist, and uh, a man who's got a, who uh, introduced him to me as a specialist in plant biology, astronomy, and also an author, uh, science fiction, and that man was Thomas Watson. And I am absolutely delighted to say that I've got Thomas Watson back here in the genie bottle with me tonight here on Madame Perry's Salon. So, Thomas Watson, welcome back to Madame Perry's Salon. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. It's nice to be back here again. It's an interesting sort of feeling being being there and being where I am in Tucson all at the same time. I, I can handle it, though, because yeah. science fiction is my thing. <laughs> yeah, so that should be your kind of place. And, of course, the last time you were here, there was several other people, so it was a little, it's a little less crowded now, maybe a little more comfortable for you. Yeah, a little, little elbow room here. It's kind of, kind of hard to stretch mm. out with wheels in the same room with you, so... Yeah, well, yeah, I know. So, <laughs> so <laughs> he's listening. I'm going to hear about that one. Oh yeah, we both will. I am sure. I am definitely <laughs> sure. Uh, um, <laughs> if, if you listen, if, I don't think you had a chance. But if you were, well, if you, if you get to listen to the uh, the courtroom show I said I did last night, I had asked Will if he would record because of his deep voice. Will he record my intro? Uh, you know, today, you know, our court our litigants, whatever, but he, he did it, but there was a lot of traffic behind him, you know, because he's, he's a trucker, so. Yeah. No, okay, well, it won't work this time, but next time I'll give you plenty of warning so that you've got time to get to a quiet place at a rest stop or something. I don't know, but he's, he's a sweetie. And how, how long have you known each other? You know, I'm, I'm trying to remember how far. We ran into each other at a, a science fiction convention, local thing here called Tuscon, and uh, he just started talking to me. I think this was five or six years ago now. He, I think he thought he knew me from somewhere. <clears throat> and it turned out to be a mistake, but, you know, we got along right from the get-go. So, you know, went, went from there. So it's, it's been a few years, you know, a little bit of interaction on, uh, on Facebook. And mostly it's the annual, excuse me, the annual uh, convention thing he and Joanna show up. And, uh, you know, we renew, renew acquaintances and, and that sort of thing. So, I, oh, okay, all right. Those are fun, aren't they? Mhm. Oh yeah. Yeah, I almost had a chance to meet. I came this very, very close to meeting uh, Will and Joanna, but I didn't get the message in time, and uh, so I certainly look forward to having an opportunity to meet both of them someday. But, but right now I've got you, and hopefully I'll meet you and your wife one day. But right now uh, we're here, so. You've got so much, you know, between plant biology we talked about and uh, astronomy we talked about that last time, and you're writing, and you've got, you're such a prolific writer. And so why don't we just launch with that? Okay. That's kind right. of the center of my life these days, so I'm good with it. Okay. Good. All right. Well, um, Tom, let's just start off with um, when you began to write. Um, how old did you start? Like in school or high school or afterwards? Or um, yeah, this is writing. Is, it's like reading books. It's one of those things where I can't point to a, an episode in my life where I thought, "Oh, I'm going to do this." I was raised by people who put an extraordinarily high value on literacy, and so reading and writing were things that I grew up doing. It was writing in particular was never a chore. It was you know something people did that that was worth doing and. I enjoyed reading so much, and, uh, and particularly fiction, that telling my own stories. I was an imaginative kid, and that was encouraged also. Um, I don't think they realized I was going to end up doing this for a living, which, you know, <laughs> quite frankly, when they realized I was heading into writing as a profession, they was like, wait a minute, we've gone too far with this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it literally, literally it's been, you know, I remember in childhood, my earliest childhood memory is, is sitting on, a, on an adult's lap, being read to, and they didn't just read the book to me and say, "Now go to sleep." They, would, you know, they would point to words and point to pictures and draw the connection, so that I had the idea that this word represented the sound that that they were using represented something. And when it came down to uh, writing, uh, very early on, you know, kind of old school family upbringing, they were big on thank you letters. It was never a thing where you must do this. 
it was, you know, Aunt So-and-so would probably, you know, get a kick out of the fact you're having so much fun with this thing. And so I would sit down and write a letter because, of course, they want to know. And so for me, writing became a pleasurable activity very early on. And I went from there to keeping journals, um, you know, writing fiction of my own. I think I submitted my first short story when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, never never got anywhere with that. But, <laughs> you know, that's when I first started think, taking it seriously enough to think, wouldn't it be cool if other people were reading this? So, yeah, it's been a lifelong thing. What kind of books did you enjoy most when you were younger? Because, you know, I think we, we hit a point where once we start being able to choose our own books, you know, we start to, we eventually we experiment and we find our groove and, and the style and the authors that we like. Well, and that, that happened also fairly early on. Uh, one of the adults in my life when I was a wee small person uh, was an avid science fiction fan. And they were trying to encourage me to read on my own, you know, as something other than schoolwork. And so she was handing me, you know, juvenile novels written by Robert Heinlein, uh, Tom Swift Jr. adventure stories by Victor Appleton, whoever the heck he was. Um, and these books, it, these books coming to me at a time when everybody was going nuts about space capitals going up and we're going to go to the moon and that sort of thing, it just... Uh, it kind of fed the astronomy interest fed into that also as you can see where it all kind of ties together um, I think I probably I, once I got hooked on science fiction I, it, it became my mainstay from I don't know probably late in middle school and so I hit a stride in that way but I was never limited to that I was always encouraged to cast a wider net and I've pretty much done that for fiction it tends to be very heavily towards science fiction non-fiction I'm all over the place. All right. So, yeah, I remember, um, I don't remember where I first started finding things like, you know, Robert Heinlein and Asimov, but I was glad that I did. So, uh, yeah, all that seemed to go. And, you know, I don't know, we may be close in age, but I remember thinking, you know, by now, um, see, it's like a sign I saw somewhere on social media that said, you know, I thought by now we'd have these flying cars and uh, <laughs> Instead, we're teaching people how to wash their hands. But, yeah. That's it does, like does seem that well, Something you have to remember about science fiction, you know, we're all very imaginative people writing this stuff. We're the worst prophets you could possibly imagine. We get most of it wrong all of the time. I mean, the whole idea of, you know, atomic-powered cars and flying cars and jetpacks, you know, that was Disney. And, you know, people, I mean, about the only science fiction predictions I can think of of any any note right off the top of my head that came true was uh, uh, the Internet and waterbeds. So <laughs> Heinlein predicted waterbeds, and I had somebody, I forget who, was writing about computers connecting everything, and, you know, next thing you know, we're, we're living with it. So, no, but we're actually, we're not very good at predicting the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and now that you mentioned that, then I remember, yes, it was Dick Tracy that told us we could talk on our, our wristwatches eventually. So. Yeah, there's one that worked. <laughs> Although technically it wasn't really science fiction, uh, except for the moon thing. Well, yeah, exactly. It wasn't science fiction, but he had the technology going. Oh yeah, yeah. And some of some of that stuff, you know, some of that stuff has actually happened. I mean, you, it, the phones don't really fit on our wrists all that well, but you're still, you know, talking to people all over the world with a thing you're holding in your hand wherever you happen to be walking. You know, that's that's science fiction in real life. And it's one of the things that, and as quickly as these things come out, one of the problems that I've, I've had, and science fiction writers, other science fiction writers tell you this too, one of the big challenges of writing in this genre is writing it fast enough. Because if you set your stuff too close to, to the present day, the reality of it all is going to run right over the backside of you. I mean, you can't move fast enough forward. Oh, <laughs> Everything changes okay. so fast. I never thought about it like that. Okay, that's your point. Um, well, let's get let's, let's get right into the book. Now, you've got several. I don't know where to start, but I do know um, one of the that's very popular is uh, the series on um, war, the War of the Second Iteration, uh, which is an extremely popular series of yours. So, would you tell us about it for anybody that doesn't know about it yet? Well, it's it's certainly getting a lot of good reviews. I mean, people that do read it, I have very few uh, negative reviews on it, which surprises me. 
you know, most people you get a pretty even spread of reviews, and mine are, are very heavily slanted toward three, four, and five stars, which is enormously gratifying. It's uh, essentially a space opera, um, but not you know, space opera is a wider thing than most people think. Space opera can be anything from Star Wars with magic swords and people, you know, mystical things going on to Star Trek, which is all very hard science fiction. Um, people-oriented stories. Mine's somewhere in the middle there. Uh, if you, if anybody out there is reading C.J. Sherry, um, her her style of space opera comes very close to what I'm doing. I'm not comparing myself to her by any stretch of the imagination. She's an enormously gifted storyteller. Um, I, I should be lucky so to hit a bar that high ever. But uh, these stories are basically set 400 years in the future where people have been expanding out from our solar system in a steady incremental rate, building a civilization. And they finally, after 400 years, find an alien civilization. And the the basic plot of it all is that these aliens that they meet are not alien enough. They're too much like us, and it turns out it's not an accident. And therein lies the tale. Beyond that, Uh you start getting into spoilers, so I won't do that. (laughs) Okay. Now, there are five books in the series. Does it take the entire five books to get to 400 years of searching? No, no. The, the 400 years of searching is where it starts. You know, they okay. they do one more mission and, boom, voila, there they are. You know, they actually have people at the beginning of the book that believe that we're alone in the universe, and they find out the hard way that we're not, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's set 400 years in the future. How about that? Okay, there we go. Okay, all right, that that helps a lot. Uh, so we just kind of do a jetpack there. Um, so <laughs> well, the, that's why the I said four hundred years in the future, nobody can bump into me from behind this way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you weren't kidding about that. All right. No, nope. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to read out the titles of the books in the in that series, The War of the Second Iteration. Uh, by Thomas Watson. And by the way, if you are listening tonight, which is Tuesday, June 16th, if you have, if you're listening to us live uh, and you have a question or a comment for Thomas Watson about books, biology, uh, plant biology, astronomy, just give us a call. The number is 646-716-9922. That's 646-716-9922. Two two toll free number in the continental U.S. And if you're a place where you can't you can't make a phone call, you can always message me the question or comment on uh, Facebook through either Jennifer Maudette Perry or through uh, Madame Perry Salon. So yeah, we'll be open for you. So we're going to read the titles, and I was going to say you could correct me if I mispronounce something, or would you rather? say the titles to make sure they're not mispronounced. Yeah, either way. I mean, I, my rule, as I believe I mentioned to you in an earlier conversation, is that if I know which book you're talking about, you said it right. <laughs> because it's <laughs> going to sound different in everybody's heads. Okay. So go for it. We'll <laughs> All right. see what happens. Yeah. All right, I'm on. Uh, the word second iteration begins with, the first book is The Luck of the Hananga. That's good. The second found, Founder's Effect. The third one is the plight of Eliantha or Eliantna. There you go. The the next one is the courage to accept. And book five in the second War of the Iteration series is the Dime Prosh. How close was that? Pretty close. Um, I, we have a running joke in the household here. Uh, my original pronunciation has been supplanted by what my wife thinks it should sound like, and she's got more knowledge about language than I do. So I go with her, and it's Seth M. Prosh. So why oh, she gets a, an O sound in Prosh, I don't really know. But <laughs> but yeah, no, you got it. And believe me, I've had people come up to me at science fiction conventions and book signings, and it just yeah, you're so much closer than most people get. You, you pat yourself on the back there, because <laughs> okay. man, I've heard some. I've I've literally winced a time or two. It's like, no, no, okay, don't be mean to them. They're they read they're reading your books. Roll with it. <laughs> so, and that's that's the five, and those are the first five things that I I uh, I shouldn't say. There was a book before that, a nonfiction book about being an amateur astronomy. That was an experiment 
to see how this whole self-publishing thing works. And it's popular among amateur astronomers, but you know, not not outside that. The real, the the core of what I've written so far is that five book series. There's a a book after that that sprung into being as kind of a coda to that series called All the Bedevils Us. Um, and I've got other books related to that central story that I'll be writing in the future. And then, of course, I'm taking shots at odd things all around the edges. I'm trying to cast as wide yeah, that writing as I did reading. Good. So, um, yeah, then you also, yeah, all the bedevilness. Dude, all your covers are so good. All the bedevilness. I had been putting that out a lot on social media. It's such a gorgeous cover. Call. And then uh, your book, Toby. Now, after seeing everything else, you know, your your book about astronomy and then all your, uh, the second world iteration, those five books, also the one before, uh, the Griffin Stone. Yeah. And yeah, that's... then I see Toby with this beautiful dog on the front, and I'm thinking, okay, is this a dog from outer space? Come on, Thomas, <laughs> let me know. So I'll know what to expect. Well, it's, it did this, I didn't expect it. Um, the way story ideas come to me is I, I, I'm kind of a permanent daydreamer. And things, you know, I, I tell stories to myself, sort of, and they start to take on a life of their own, get a little momentum. And I really think in order to stay completely sane, I have to write these things, because otherwise I would have no idea where I was. And so I started, uh, this. The, the very root of this story came from um, came from a, an acquaintance here in Tucson having a dog get loose from the runaway. And some kind soul found the dog in another part of town, had the chip read by by a veterinarian, found out that the dog lived you know x number of miles away, and took it upon himself to bring bring the uh, bring the dog home to its owner. And when I was talking to her after she got her dog back, and of course this this is a cause for a huge celebration. It, you know the comment was made. It's a good thing that we all lived in the same town because if you know we'd lost this dog somewhere else and then gone home and. Literally from that little germ, I started imagining what would it be like if I found a stray dog, and and found out it, its owners lived in Illinois. What the heck would I do? And this story unfolded from that it has nothing science fictional, nothing fantastical. It's happening here and now in the real world, and it's become sort of an antidote. Writing it, uh, the world has been such a mess, not just this past year, few months, but you know, last several years, and I found myself telling a story in which people are basically doing the right things for the right reason. And I thought, well, nobody's going to read this. It's just so unrealistic. It's the most popular thing I've written. I mean, people really? just love that book. And they all want to adopt the dog on the cover. <laughs> oh, yeah. So do I. It, it's the same cover designer, by the way, um, if, if I'm allowed to give somebody a plug. Um, the outfit is called Fiona Jade Media. And uh-huh. she is uh, she is marvelous. She the, Her ability to communicate with you and draw ideas out of you and then come up with something. Every one of those covers I looked at after the fact and said, damn, how'd she do that? Because that's what the guy looked like to, in my head. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the person. So, yeah, those those covers have been worth their weight in gold. But, yeah, Toby was very much a departure. I don't know where, you know, what prompted me to actually take it seriously enough to write it. I'm glad I did. It was fun to write. Yeah, it is. And, you know, that's... Uh... And, and, oh, and thanks for giving the shout out to the uh, to the uh, illustrator because that's that's an important thing, you know. That the people talk about don't judge a book by a cover, but a, a cover can grab you and give you an emotional feel about what's inside the book already, or a recognition that it's something that speaks to you. Yeah, an acquaintance of mine who is more into the marketing, more of an entrepreneur than an author. I mean, he writes a few books, but his main thing is helping people sell books. And his he's, one of his most frequently heard bits of advice is that your marketing plan starts with the cover. Doesn't matter what you've written, uh-huh. the cover does not represent it well. You know, if it doesn't look good in a thumbnail, you know, on Amazon, you're screwed. It's not going to, you know, you're not going to snag an audience. It's not so much that people, I think, judge the book by the the, the cover. Is that the, the cover, you know, speaks to them in a way that makes them want to look inside the cover and see what's there. One of the things I like about this particular artist is that her covers tend to make eye contact with the reader. If you look at them, you realize all those characters are looking at you. You know, there's, they're trying, it's like they're trying to draw a connection. 
and it's one of her hallmarks. And I'm just thrilled to pieces with the the effect that those covers have. Oh yeah, yes, I do. Yeah, they do. They look right at you. They make eye contact. Just kind of make that's one thing that makes it hard to look away, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, which is nice. the whole idea. I don't want you to look away. <laughs> <laughs> don't look away. Pick this up. Yeah. Get the cash register. Buy the book. Buy it. Read Take it. it home or order it. <laughs> and then tell me what you thought. I love, yeah. I love getting the feedback. I don't get nearly enough reviews. I, I love hearing what people think. Well, I, you know, that's what keeps me going to the small science fiction conventions in the region here, because I can talk to people that have read the books, and they're very honest, believe me. <laughs> they, they, they can be very forthright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen some. Um, here's, if you don't mind me saying this, now I was looking at your website. It's called UnderDesertStars.com, yes. and I happen to see somebody left a comment on there, and I hope you don't mind me read that it says, um, "I hope you are the Thomas Watson who wrote with my own eyes in, in the May." 2012 issue of Sky and Telescope. Thank you for such a wonderful article that also expressed my feelings from the time I first saw Saturn's rings almost 40 years ago until now. I still want to see the rings myself. And they go on about this and about, you know, how much your article meant to them. And apparently they found it after uh, they had kept this article or kept the magazines. And I was that and I thought, oh, that must be a good feeling. It, it, it surely is. In fact, I mean, this I've, re, I've become a little better acquainted with this that individual. There's a uh, an online astronomy forum called Cloudy Nights, which is kind of an in joke. You know, what do you do if you're in astronomy and it's it's cloudy outside? You go online and talk to people. And uh, <laughs> I had written the uh, written the article for the back page little featurette thing of Sky and Telescope magazine, and basically what the essay is about is you know why. You can go online and find fantastic images of all these things. Why would you spend all your time looking through an eyepiece at a black and white faint version of these things? It's the experience. It isn't what you're learning. It isn't. It isn't what you're accomplishing. It's being there and doing that thing. And I was surprised that that it's funny you would bring up that particular essay because that's what prompted me to write uh, Mr. Olcott's Skies, which is the first thing I published. And it is a. It is a. Uh, it's basically a memoir of how I came to be interested in astronomy as a pursuit um, as a teenager, how I lost track of it for a good 30 years, and what brought me back into it. And I've been active in it now for a good 15 years. So, I mean, that, that essay, writing it, and the responses I got online from, hey, I, that's just how I feel. I wrote that little book, and I'm getting the same responses on that. People are remembering when they were teenagers and the, bit, the bug first bit them. Uh, it's a remarkable number of people did the same journey. They were interested as kids, and as one guy put it, he said, then I discovered girls. You know, all of a sudden being an astronomer <laughs> was too nerdy, and you wanted to get a date. So that was, and, yeah, mea culpa, that's what happened to me, too. You know, you start getting self-conscious. You know, a girl says, what are you doing in your spare time? Well, I, I study the stars, and they look at you like, really? <laughs> and so you kind of backpedal this thing. When you're a teenager, you're sensitive to that kind of stuff, you know. But um, yeah, a lot of people related to that book, and it's you know it's it's cool that you brought up that one comment because that got me to thinking about the commonality of the experience, and I realized that if I wrote from that vein, other people out there were going to want to read it, and so I did. And it's it's not a huge seller, but it's uh, very it's fairly well known in the astron- amateur astronomy community, which is very gratifying. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, I've got to. Um... Well, yeah, when you read something like, you know, somebody took the time. They could have just thought about it, you know, read it, thought about it, and then just laid it down. But they thought about it enough to try to track you down and ask you, you know, want to make sure, are you the same Thomas Watson? You know, that, like I said, to me, that means that you really, you know, you really reached, um, you touched them, and it's about something that interested them and made a connection. So, yeah, okay, well, you know what? I, um... I told you I've got a sponsor this week that I want to uh, give some attention to, so we're going to do that for a moment. But before before we get there, then we'll come back, and maybe we'll talk more about astronomy. Who knows? Okay. Um, we, guys, we, hey, my husband found a connection to, uh, to, the, to the plant, the, uh, the, the maze um, study we were talking about. 
I thought he was just kidding me, but um, oh, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's, uh, so that's a while back now, but <laughs> who knows? Yeah, his was yeah. too. So who knows where this all goes? But anyway, I'm going to uh, talk to let you learn something about a Kickstarter for a product that's going to start. The Kickstarter is going to begin on June 22nd, and for people who don't want uh, a cow to die to give them um, accessories. This is a vegan belt, and they say it is virtually indestructible, and it's, going to, it's called the Belt of Orion. Oh, how what an odd coincidence. And it's going to be... And the, uh, Why not? Starts, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, me, amigo. Why not? Oh, and by the way, let me give a shout-out to one of our, our listeners out here listening live. Uh, Stephanie Carol Hansen. Stephanie, thank you so much. You know Hello, Stephanie, Steph. don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that is somebody so I know, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, she in fact, she is. Okay so far. When, you, uh, when, when you're self-published and you're on a shoestring, it's kind of hard to hire an editor, so you have volunteers that give you feedback before you release the book. They're called beta readers, and Steph's one of my beta mm-hmm. readers. So I'm, oh, I'm good. just pleased, I'm pleased to know in that she's she's following this. That, that's good to know. <laughs> and and. She may not know this, too, but Stephanie, you're also uh, you're also my helper on this because when I'm riding solo in the studio, I don't always know how it sounds out there, if, we, if you hear us at all or what. So thank you for that, too. Okay, so we're going to learn a bit right now about okay. the belt. Are you someone who typically destroys belts? Are you someone who knows that fashion doesn't have to be cruel to be cool? There's a new vegan belt coming out called the Belt of Orion that will solve these two issues. It's a high-end, virtually indestructible, animal-friendly belt from a small company called Truth Belts. A secret was discovered by the Mennonites who use a unique man-made material for their horses' reins and harnesses because it's stronger than leather and won't crack at the holes. This material is used in the new Belt of Orion. The words love, light, and truth are engraved on the back of the buckle, which is nickel-free. Why the name Orion? Well... Orion's belt is the name of a famous star constellation that is easily recognizable because of the three stars that are arranged in a line which make up Orion's belt. The belt of Orion will launch on Kickstarter on June 22nd of 2020. Visit Kickstarter and do a search for Belt of Orion Vegan Belt. Wow, did you just beam right. me up? How- I did, I did. Well, I didn't know if you were wandering. I didn't know if you were wandering around in the genie bottle during the promo, so I just thought I got I got to bring him back. Um, well, it didn't work. hurt you, did it? You're okay. Okay. No, good. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it was, it was very gently done. All right. That's it. <laughs> so, talk about astronomy. Um, you studied astronomy. And how does someone again? become an amateur? Talk about studying astronomy as an amateur. Do you consider yourself an amateur astronomer? Yes. Okay. Yeah, amateur in, the, in uh, the true sense of the word. Okay, now you say amateur in the true sense, but I looked up the uh, the website you just talked about, the Cloudy Nights. Uh, yes. Cloudy Nights, subtitled Your Astronomical Community. And let me tell you, this read this is like another language altogether. So this is you guys' <laughs> idea of amateur. I don't think I think I'd be cross-eyed if I saw you your pro sides. Okay, so uh, talk about your if if you would tell us about your entry into astronomy. I think I was telling you that a friend of mine's daughter, who's about twelve years old, has is fascinated with astronomy, and she was saying, telling her mother, yes, I I love it. I love the planets, but I have a particular affinity for Neptune. Now. I would imagine, you know, her mother goes, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a dummy, but I have no idea what to say to that. But you, what would you say to somebody like that? Well, to the the general interest in astronomy, you know, particularly to, to somebody that young, I, you know, it'd be every bit of encouragement I could throw in there would do it. Um, Neptune is a fascinating planet about which we know very little, actually. So, uh, you know, the the first thing I would say is that we don't know a whole lot about that planet. Maybe you should, you know, study it. You know, maybe see what you can discover. You know, encourage them to go looking into things. Um, but 
is you know, focusing on one planet like that, though, uh, most most young people I've met that have an interest in astronomy um, are interested in the broader broader picture as well. So I would be, you know, picking their brains, having a conversation. It's like, you know, how interested are you? Do you want to go out and look at the stars? Do you, know, do you have a pair of binoculars? You know, try to find some entry point to get them actually doing it as opposed to saying, I, I like this planet. Um, and some of the outreach I've been involved with on a local club here uh, works that way. You get, you know, you get families bringing kids to look through the telescope, and then five minutes later, mom or dad are coming over saying, "How do we get into this?" <laughs> because man, he really wants a telescope now. Yeah, but yeah, I, it's it's hard to predict what kind of a conversation I'd have with with a kid in that position or an adult for that matter. But the times that I've done it, um, I've basically talked about the things I've done that I enjoyed and. Anything that they light up to, I lean into. And it could be anything from planets like Neptune and Saturn to the moon, you know, looking at comets, looking at shooting stars. And there's an awful lot up there you can do. It's it's hard to specialize, really. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine so. Um, so. So, yeah, I think what I was asking you, too, is, you know, do you remember when you first got interested in, in astronomy and what sparked or piqued your interest, and how did you continue on to to learn so much about it? Well, it's it's a lot of like the writing, where you know it, it goes so far back in there that I can't point to a thing. It's just kind of been in the background and gradually got mixed up with other interests to the point where it became an activity. Um, I grew up in a fairly rural area, a very very small town in north central Illinois in the '60s, and it was you know the skies are very dark. And I was raised by people who, in addition to wanting me to read, you know, we'd be walking someplace. They would never say, you know, that's a tree. They would say it's an oak or an elm. You know, they were very specific. And they'd tell you what the differences were. Out at night under the stars, my father would, would point, you know, that's the constellation Orion. You can, you know, see the three stars in the belt. That sort of thing. That's the Big Dipper. Here's how you find the North Star using the Big Dipper. You know, things like that were constantly coming at me. And so... You know, to me, from a very early age, looking up at the stars was was a good thing to do. I, it, it's connected with a lot of, of very very dim but good childhood memories. Um, I also, because of that environment I was growing up in, had a very strong interest in the natural sciences, plants, rocks. You know, studying birds. You know, I was a typical kid bringing things home and that they'd get loose in the house and run around drive my mother nuts. Um, yeah, my my idea of a natural history collection was stuff that you had to feed. I didn't kill things, and so uh, yeah, she she tells stories about snakes in the house. Yeah, it's just snakes and insects and things like that running loose, and so all of it just kind of came together. And something about astronomy, I was also a bit of a loner, and astronomy is something that you can get a lot out of all by yourself. You don't need to have other people. And I, I like I like observing with other people as an adult, but when I was a teenager. You know, I'd, I'd go out in the field north of my house and set up the telescope I had at the time, and just the, the rest of the world didn't exist. It was just me and the stars. Uh, but I have I have little memories that, that come to the surface now, and then some of which are in that, that book, Old Cod Skies, um, where when I was a very small boy, I had atrocious earaches, ear infections. And it just drove my dad nuts, and he couldn't do anything about it. You know, the kid was sick and in pain, and all you could do is pat him on the head and say, there, there. And I was having a fitful morning as he was getting ready for work. And he took me outside, wrapped me up in a blanket, took me outside, and started pointing at things in the night sky. And one of these things was the uh, the star cluster called the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, it's otherwise known. It's a prominent thing in fall and winter up in the sky, a little cluster of bright blue stars. And uh, for some reason, that image is burned in my brain of seeing those stars hovering in the east over the the woods to the east of us as my father was holding and telling me stories about the Pleiades. I found out years later that there was, he had a set of books that he was reading so that he was always like one constellation ahead of us. <laughs> he wasn't really a stargazer. <laughs> His kids were asking him questions about the stars and he didn't know a damn thing about them so he bought these books and started reading them and studying them so that he could he could sound like he knew everything. But I have that, that very vivid great. childhood memory of him trying to comfort me in, in that, that awkward time by taking me out under the stars. And so, you know, if that didn't set the hook, I don't know what would. Oh, I like that. I think that's wonderful, though. I mean, he's just, he was just determined to keep up for you guys. 
Oh yeah. In fact, I ended up with a copy of the, the first the first book that he picked up was something called A Primer for Stargazers, and I have a copy of it now. I don't know if it's the same one he had, but it's the same you know copy of the same book, and I've I've read it a couple of times myself and realized you know. Yeah, he had to have been reading really fast to stay ahead of us with this because the book has a lot of information <laughs> in it. So yeah, but he was he was bound to determine that we, no question went unanswered. So we wanted to know what why the moon changed shape. He he found out how how lunar phases work. He drew a picture one day and showed it to me and said, "This is how it happens." And I remember all these things. Little bits and pieces come back. Oh, that's that's magnificent. It really is. So, and I really admire him for that, you know. And I just, uh, he's just, just trying to keep up and just to stay ahead and, uh, and never let you down. And, well, and he never really what a, <laughs> Well, what a sweetheart of a guy. So, when did you tell me about when you first started? What happens to an astronomer when you get into it? Do you do you start getting a telescope? Do you, is there a certain one that you look for? Is there the red? Is, excuse me. Is there a, an equivalent to the Christmas story Red Rider BB gun? Well, in popular imagination, there is one, uh, and a, a mistake a lot of people make um, when a kid shows interest is they buy they go to a department store or Walmart or something like that. And they buy uh, an inexpensive refractor telescope. It's got about a two-inch lens on it. And they tend to be very poorly made. You can buy telescopes that size that are well-made. I got lucky. The one I acquired back in the late 60s was a gem, and I'm still using it to this day after all these years. Um, Most people that are starting out under their own power, so to speak, and not waiting for parents to give gifts, tend to buy a pair of binoculars and start learning the constellations. You know, and that's that's an easy thing to do. I mean, there are lots of publications out there, printed and online, that'll give you the basics of how to find Orion, how to find the Big Dipper, you know, how to find Bootus, the the herdsman, um, and then you learn your way around the sky. And the binoculars just kind of make everything brighter. You see more stars, you see deeper. You don't see a lot of objects. You really can't see planets very well with them. But it's it's a good, inexpensive learning experience because you can get a good good pair of binoculars for under $100 for that purpose. They won't be excellent binoculars, but they'll be good enough for that. And then mm-hmm. after that, go online and start searching telescopes. Um, actually, if, if somebody's listening and they, they think, oh, I'd really like to give this a try with a telescope, go on that Cloudy Nights forum. There's a subsection for beginners. And those people do nothing all day long but help people figure out how to get into this and do it. Best advice I could give you. Um, and it's it's a very family friendly forum. It's very heavily moderated. There's you don't see flame wars. You don't see any profanity. I mean they they don't allow that. So it's a good good place for younger people to go with with parental supervision. So that's one way to do it. You know it's uh, and once you get once you get hooked into it, you can start out small. You can go completely crazy and spend tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, it, it depends on how brave you are and how much money you've got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. uh, there isn't really a step-by-step process is what it comes down to yeah okay uh, by the way we've only got a few more minutes and, and this has just gone by so fast for me it sure did uh, yeah see the two hours who knew but um no last time you were on it was two hours that's right but anyway this was yeah. just buzzed by um if if uh, we got a few more minutes with uh, Thomas Watson, if you have a question or a comment for me and you, and you want to call in, the number is 646-716-9922, or you can message in a question or comment, as uh, we've already seen people out there comment that they're listening, and we appreciate that so much. Um, have you ever, have you or, or your friends ever been looking through the, the uh Telescopes look at the skies and have seen something that you just couldn't quite explain that made you wonder a little bit. You know, I've never actually had that experience. Um, more often than not, I'll look at it and say, "What the heck was that?" and realize it was a satellite or find something. My first time I ever saw the International Space Station go overhead, I thought, "Oh, that's got to be something," <laughs> and it it turned red and then disappeared. I thought, "What the hell?" Well, you know, basic astronomy, something I forgot in that moment, is that when it's heading from more or less from west to east or, you know, southwest to northeast, it goes into the Earth's shadow. 
and it, it, you know, it's like sunset on the space station. You know, it turns kind of a reddish color and then fades from view. But I've never, I've, I've met people who have seen things that had them scratching their heads. Um, very few amateur astronomers will say, wow, I saw a UFO. We just don't, yeah, we don't go there very often. Um, because all unidentified flying object means is I didn't know what the heck that was. You know, there's no implication <laughs> there. So um, I've, I've seen things I couldn't um, quickly identify, but I've never been. I've never found myself wondering if I was about to be abducted or anything like that. <laughs> Nothing ever gave me that feeling um, that something hmm, could happen. You never just kind of woke up with some unexplained time lapse or something. Or No, <laughs> no, only when I'm driving oh, home okay. from being up with a telescope too late, and that's scary because it means I've been dozing off while I drove. <laughs> not, not something that's recommended. <laughs> yeah, I tend to so, I tend to spend so, nights places and sleep it off, you know. <laughs> All right. So, um, <laughs> that's good. Well, you know, speaking of which, you do have some books that are just more about astronomy. And so, while we are while I'm getting to talk to you, uh, tell us about those. Um, Mister, you got Mister Olcott's guys. This is written. You said for the amateur astronomer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mr. Olcott Skies is more more or less a memoir. It's, you know, a very, very tiny slice of my life just focused on the astronomy, how important it was to me as a teenager, how I came to lose lose sight of it and what brought me back. You know, a very specific event, something that happened, brought me back into it, and then how I explored my way back into it, relearning the constellations, relearning the basics. Uh, bumping into that astronomy forum, Cloudy Nights, which made a huge difference in the, the learning curve. Um, those people can be, you know, they can be insanely frustrating in their disputes over what's the best, you know, little tiny bit to use for a particular job. But at the same time, they're incredibly generous with the information that they, they provide. So, you know, it's a lot of that. And then three, Tales of a Three-Legged Newt. Um, that's a title that it's kind of an in-joke with amateur astronomers. A three-legged newt is what they call a Newtonian telescope. It's a big mirror at the back and all the focusing and IP stuff's up front. It was invented by Isaac Newton, so they call it a Newtonian. And you usually put it on a tripod, so it's got three legs. And so we joke about that every now and then somebody refer to using a three-legged newt. And I decided to write a follow-up to Olcott Skies, which Olcott Skies ends with me buying a bigger telescope, you know, the childhood dream of a lifetime. I finally got this big telescope, and I leave it at that. Um, and Tales of a Three-Legged Newt is a collection of essays. It's not really a story, an entire story. It's a collection of disparate essays of experiences I've had getting to know how to use the thing, thing you know, experiences with outreach, you know, taking it to schools and letting kids look through it, things of that sort. So it's a, it's a very different book from Olcott Skies. It's not one continuous story. So those are the two astronomy books, and there will be more. I just haven't written them yet. Okay, but they're on route. And by the way, just so you know, folks, all that I can see, all of uh, Thomas Watson's books, whether it's the astronomy books, Mr. Olcott's Skies, Tales of a Three-Legged Newt, um, his sci-fi books, uh, Griffinstone, the five books from this war, the second iteration, Toby, all of his work is available uh, on well, I guess you can you can go to his website under desertstars.com. You can also get them from, uh, but Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kobo, Apple, uh, available on Kindle, and just really anywhere you get your you want to get your books, you can find them. And of course, because some people listen, tell me they listen when they're driving or or running or working out. I will. You know that I will also share this information as far as Thomas's uh, website and where to get all of his books on all of my social media, so uh, you don't have to worry about it. I'll be sharing it on the uh, Madam Perry Salon social media as well and as my final, own personal. I'm sorry. Media. Final note on availability of the books: they're also all available in paperback, which means you can go to your favorite local independent bookstore and order them if you don't like eBooks. Okay, good, nice. Um, yeah, some of us still really enjoy a paperback book, so that's good. And you can always, uh, I guess it's 
with some bookstores, you can order them and they'll take them outside to your car for you right now, or some you can go on in and get them. But yeah, definitely. Depends like on how to, brave they uh, are. Like to, <laughs> but yeah, and we like to support independent stores too, uh, small bookstores, oh, yeah. definitely. Thomas, I, this is, I've had so much fun talking to you. It, before you go, is there anything else you want to tell us about that we need to know about you, your work, or anything coming up? I know that usually people at this time say, well, I'll be at this con or that's, or I'll be at this bookstore somewhere reading, and right now there's not a lot of that happening. But. Yeah, we're all, we're all kind of stay at home, which you know could be worse. Being a writer, I spend so much of my time sitting behind a computer anyway. You know, People ask me, how are you handling the... Stay stay home, stay safe. It's my job, you know. That's what I do for a living. <laughs> I'm always home, so it, it has not been much of a wrench for me. Uh, it, uh, there's some people out there I'm missing because we haven't been face to face in months. But um, yeah, it, anything else I could bring up at this point, we'd be talking for another 45 minutes. So <laughs> we should quit while we're ahead. <laughs> All right, this has been so much fun. And yeah, I just it it, I, I don't know why it didn't, didn't occur to me. Well, good, I'm glad because I really want you to come back again. This is only your second time, but hey, you're you're um, you're a friend of the show, and you're welcome back anytime. And uh, what a coincidence, Belt of Orion is our sponsor really... tonight with the vegan belt, that, that, the Kickstarter. That is a curious, uh, yeah, <laughs> curious coincidence. Curious. So, all right. Yeah, definitely. Well, I've enjoyed this. Hey, you know where uh, to find me if you ever want to do this again. Oh, okay. Thanks. I'm going to take that as, as an invitation and a promise. And uh, remember, this is Madam Perry's salon. By the way, if you didn't listen last night, listen to it's only seven minutes. But my uh, I, I did my premiere last night of my courtroom show, Madam Judge Madam Perry. I uh, hope you get a kick out of it. And I'm going to end with my with a song from my CD called Everybody's Got to Swing. If you'd like a copy. If you'd like a copy, Thomas, let me know. If you like uh, vocal jazz and swing, or if you don't, it's a great coaster or a cat toy, because you know, people use kind of shiny. Anyway, this is Adam Perry. Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.